life's a game, the world's a stage, and we are merely role players, where theatrical people play role playing games. Uh, welcome to the Merely Role Players replay. We'll be looking at season five, uh, Codename Mosaic. I'm delighted once more to be joined by uh, our storyteller, Matt. Don't give them my real name. Shh, Codename Boothman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how are we feeling with four seasons through? Yeah. You think overall everyone's getting into the flow of things? Yeah, it definitely feels that way. I think you can you can feel us having hit our stride by this point and sort of having a formula that works. Mm. Do you think um, production-wise, organisation-wise, technical-wise, it's all getting a bit easier too? Uh, yeah. Falling into a routine. Yeah. This is uh, before we start getting more ambitious with things like sound design. Mm-hmm. Although the, I think you can, if you listen to the musical themes of uh, seasons one to five next to each other, you can definitely see some evolution there. Yes, I believe. Let me think. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the musical theme for "Let's Get Gideon" sounded like. I think that one it was, was a double pretty, bass. It's a that's the one. Yeah. So, um, like the first two are just little, little licks, little stings. Um, Amnesty is still very simple. But I was really, really pleased with how genre-appropriate it felt. Because it's got that long whistle and yeah. uh, flute or something underneath, or it's There's, a clarinet, it's I, something woodwindy. Yes, I don't think Garage Band actually had a clarinet, but I managed to tweak the settings on a different instrument to make it sound like one. Fantastic. One for all you music nerds out there. <laughs> and then, so yeah, I think Gideon is quite sort of basic mm-hmm. uh, with that kind of walking double bass. But then this might be the first one where I started using loops, or that might be parallax. I can't quite remember. This has got that synthy brass That's it. noise. Yes, in it. yes. There's definitely. I had started experimenting with the loops window for, mm-hmm. for this one. Absolutely. Uh, you gotta you gotta have brass mm-hmm. for a Bond style. You absolutely thing. do. I'm just sad you didn't have a Shirley Bassey impersonator <laughs> warbling over the top of it. Um, but everybody would have heard the uh, wonderful intro music at the start of this episode. I'm sure. So let's crack on then. Season 5, Codename Mosaic, starring Ellie, Vicky, Strat, and uh, new player Chris McLennan. A high-stakes spy thriller, a tale of betrayal, subterfuge, and intrigue. A story where we find agents Tanktop, Pigeon, Anvil, and Foxglove racing against time to uncover and stop a dastardly plot. Ooh, fun. Mm. Spies are fun, aren't they? It's a... It's a genre I am very familiar with. I've enjoyed Bond for a long time, and Mission Impossible seems to keep going strength to strength as well. Uh, yeah, it's a fun genre to play around in. Yeah, everybody everybody will have seen at least one James Bond film or a Mission Impossible film or be aware of the genre in general. I was going to say, like, it's, a, it's one of those ones that even if you haven't seen a James Bond film, you still know the trappings to yep. some extent. 100%. I don't think you had much trouble getting sign-up volunteers to join in this game. Um, speaking of which, um, with the introduction of Chris McLennan, who we'll come on to in a second, we continue to grow the yeah. um, the cast of Merely Role Players. You said originally, you know, you didn't see it as being quite as expansive as it turned out to be. How, how do you think it is, um, with the exception of Ellie and Vicky for a lot of it, um, how do you find it is having new players joining so often? Uh, I, I think it's good. It keeps refreshing things so that it's always exciting and unpredictable for the audience. You never quite know. Like there's enough familiarity with the sort of the same person in the GM chair most of the time and at least a couple of familiar voices each time. But you keep getting kind of fresh blood, fresh perspectives, mm. fresh approaches to role playing in there. So it never gets stale. It also means that as well as having a different dynamic with each player, you get a different dynamic depending on the group of yeah. people that are together and how they work and how they interact. What, a lot what of... sort of behaviour they encourage in each other. Exactly, exactly. We've got people that have got different relationships, some close friends, two married couples, lots of you know um, dif- different relationships going on there. So depending on sort of the mix, you get uh, an, interesting, an interesting story. This sees uh, the return of Vicky, uh, who was out for two seasons. Uh, last appearance was in Five Stage Rescue. Strat, who will come up, uh, who, who will come on to, who was in season three previously. But let's talk about first time introduction of Chris McLennan, the third Chris in the Chris trilogy. <laughs> he came to us from another podcast. Yes, well, he's, well he uh, runs another podcast. Yeah, he is an old school friend of mine. Is where I know him from, kind of outside the podcasting and gaming sphere. But yes, he is actually his is the very first 
role-playing game actual play podcast I ever listened to. So he got you into it? Uh, you could say that. So he, he used to be in a podcast called The Gentleman's Four, uh, which was a Dungeons & Dragons actual play, uh, which I think they, I don't think they released all that many episodes because mm. um, it was kind of an experiment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the first, my first experience of being an audience to somebody else playing a role-playing game. For sure. You know he's obviously got the pedigree to mm. sort of um, play in these sorts of games, so yeah. there's less of a worry of bringing a new player in that maybe you had when, say, I joined for the first time or yeah. when we've had other first-timers joining. Yeah, and then more currently, uh, he was joining us from the Space Jam Continuum podcast, which is a show where he and his friend Cal uh, attempt to uh, cobble together a an MCU-style cohesive cinematic universe from all of Looney Tunes and their and how did they get on? Uh, it is uh, com- complex. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, did, so they recorded this before the reboot of Space Jam yes. came out, right? So do they have to start again and introduce everybody from that? <laughs> no, they didn't restart. Uh, so the, the original concept was it would be all, all the cartoons and they lead up to Space Jam, which is the Avengers Assemble. Right. Of- of the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies verse. That makes sense. And then Warner Brothers came along and decided they were releasing Space Jam 2, which threw a big spanner in the works and you know, changed a lot of things in yeah. Space Jam Continuum. Yeah, Chris lost his mind. He couldn't <laughs> cope with the influx of information. Uh, but anyway, he uh, wasn't talking Looney Tunes this time. He was taking on the role of the, um, the Felix Leiter role. Yeah. The other agency. The, the, Very clever. Jo- He's literally coming from another agency in the <laughs> yes. podcasting world uh, and playing the role of the um, yeah the player from uh, the person from another. Yes. Yeah, so it was a, a way of in-world reflecting the fact that we had somebody joining us who wasn't a member of Blackshaw Theatre Company, the organisation that the podcast is hung around at that point. Did he, ever, did he start with an accent in yes. this one? He did. And he, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm sure he did. Uh, And also uh, here is uh, someone you've all worked with before, your liaison from the agency, Agent Foxglove. Hey, Foxglove. Long time no see. Hope you're well. Always. I'm just going to put it on record. That's very brave of him to assume an accent (laughs) this early on um, in the game world. I mean, I'm doing one for um, for Vigil and I lose it most times and it drives me mad. So, um, yeah, fair play to him for doing that. Yeah, fitting quite nicely, I think. Yeah. I think he was he was quite quiet to begin with, just figuring out his way amongst three very you know three veterans of merely role players. Um, so yeah, great to have Chris McLennan in, in the podcast. Yeah, somebody who needs no introduction. This is now his third game with merely um, role players. Um, Strat. Guess what? Another Royal Holloway alumni, another <laughs> improviser, another thespian, another drama maker, and a writer, and all sorts of exciting things, and an RPG player as well. Yeah. Uh, another member of the role of the um, D and D game that uh, we uh, played that Chris Starkey ran. Indeed, yeah. Strat's a clever player, isn't he? He is. Yeah. He is. You can always see his uh, brain ticking around, trying to find like a fuck yeah moment to yeah pull. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's always looking for the hail mary pass. He's always <laughs> looking the for one. the moment where he yeah that, that looks amazing. And as such, he's got an excellent mm. highlight reel throughout yeah. the seasons. Yeah, creative responses, and I keep using the phrase "big swings," but mm-hmm. yeah, he's good at taking those. Yeah, he likes to he likes to play sneaky characters. Well, <laughs> I found he's always quite quite sneaky. He's 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 roguey, hiding in the shadows. And in this is where, in the first act, he's hiding up in the up up in the eaves, yeah. um, in the lighting rig, and swooping and pouncing on people and stuff. I am going to grab some of the kind of uh, the ropes for other bits and kind of. It up and then the idea is as I get to her I am going to attempt to essentially like wrap her in that rope and restrain her so that she can't slide down I will just like to go oh you've got rope around you now <laughs> I w- run with her with the rope what I'm going to do is I'm going to suddenly go down into one of those sort of like slides on the floor and as I do I'm going to wrap the rope tight around her ankles and then just give her a little nudge and so she's going to fall off and be hanging upside down by oh, her legs goodness. in the wings and quite similar to his role in uh, in Amnesty. There was maybe yeah. a, a bit less subtlety in Amnesty mm-hmm. Strat. I mean, that's natural given that we were sort of all um, picking our stats based on our, nominally at least, based on our real world personalities. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it makes sense that he's 
sort of uh, what he is encouraged to do by the game mechanics is similar across seasons. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and he's enough of an RPG player and a writer that you uh, entrusted him in a later season to design and run his own yeah. game um, in one of only two seasons that, uh, that featured a guest uh, GM. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm always happy to relinquish the chair when asked. Mm-hmm. So there's only those two times that I've been asked. Mm-hmm. So if you want to listen to Strat Season, uh, Cloud Skipper's Captain, I believe, is season eight seven that sounds about right whatever it is uh go go through spotify go through apple music and find uh cloud skippers captain to listen to strats excellent season which of course we will be talking about in this uh, replay at some point let's move on then to the series itself any new mechanics that you brought in to the game not that are sort of at the table or, or audible like the stats still work the same harm still works the same connections still work the same all that kind of stuff the only thing that's new here is, looking back through my notes, I think I must have read Monster of the Week by this point, because one of the things that I prepped for this production was a, a countdown. This is a, a bit of GM prep that Monster of the Week recommends, where you um, prepare six stages or kind of events or escalations um, representing kind of what would happen if the main characters did nothing? So like what the bad guys or the antagonists are building towards. Mm-hmm. So generally, not a lot of the things on the countdown would actually end up happening because mm-hmm. the main characters are there and they will do stuff. Yes. But if you're ever stuck as a GM for like, what do the antagonists do next? What is their next big act? The countdown is a good prompt for it. I guess it allows you to have an overall contextual understanding of yeah. what's happening in the world as well. Yeah. So we had for this one, the countdown goes from uh, assets, i.e. Um, spies from different agencies around the world, are disappeared, followed by they are conditioned, followed by they are released, followed by they resume their posts in their respective mm. agencies, followed by they move into position, followed by they carry out and succeed in their secret mission. Oh my goodness. Wow, that's bad things that could have happened. Yeah, so some assets were disappeared because that's kind of what has happened before the production even starts. Mm -hmm. We find assets being in the process of being conditioned Mm. um, in the warehouse containers. Yes, yes, in the in the finale. Yeah, correct. But none of them are ever released, so no, we we never get to stage three. So, were you ever tempted to skip ahead for the sake of you know drama? No. You you were you were being genuine to the to the players. Yeah, because it, it's about as I say, it's about the, those stages are what happens if the players do nothing, and they're never going to do nothing. No. So it's it's more about knowing what is Mosaic's end game here, what are they building towards, and therefore what action might they take to make sure they try and get to that next stage. Sure. Yeah. I get. I guess it's a way of not necessarily hurrying along, but allowing things to be ticking along in the background. Kind of like with what we were saying about Gideon. Yeah. Right? Is there's always something ticking in the background and it wouldn't be fair to to allow your players to relax and to or to to mess around for weeks and weeks on end (laughs) and for nothing to happen in the background. You've always got that top that clock that's ticking away. Yeah, and it's looking back to something I was talking about for Ariadne or Five Stage of Rescue, that the GM being allowed to just have stuff happen and knowing what those events should be. Like something like a countdown can help with that. Mm-hmm. If nothing seems to be occurring, mm. if the players are feeling a bit at sea and a bit stuck and it feels like the story is flagging and getting sluggish, then the GM is the one that needs to make something happen and give the players something to react to. Mm-hmm. And knowing what the rest of the world and the the, the antagonists of the story want mm-hmm. And what their plan is gives you stuff that you can throw in sure. in those moments. So taking the comparison with Gideon on board again, two very similar genres, heist yeah. and spy. One's, yeah, one's like, one side of the law, one's the other, right? Yeah, it's like lots essentially of high-tech. High-tech, sneaky subtle. subterfuge. You've got an enemy, you're d- 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 sneaking around. Were you ever worried releasing both those seasons back-to-back that there would be a lot of crossover? Did you worry that? I mean, there was only one player who went, bet- who did both seasons, and that was Ellie, of course. Were you, yeah, were you worried that you'd have two seasons of the same thing in the end? I don't think so, mm. because I think 
like you say, it's that distinction of being on different sides of the law mean that even though some of the trappings are similar, the themes are very different. Mm. So in a heist, especially the kind of heist we were doing where it's almost a bit a bit Robin Hood, mm. you've got the kind of underdogs taking down the powerful kind of uh, theme. Whereas any spy fiction can't get away from themes of like authority, mm. governments, and like what what governments are or should be allowed to get away with mm. in a kind of clandestine way. True, like I guess, being agents of the state. True, is what, completely the opposite to being the Robin Hood underdog. It's to do with and um, positions of power ultimately, isn't it? You yeah. know, spies, regardless of if they're sort of you know being written off or they're just they're just individuals. They do have. Mm. The, you know, the, the full backing of Her Majesty's Secret yeah. Service behind them and they've got loads of money and they've got loads of resources and stuff. Yeah, it's about why you're doing what you're doing. You know, the, the heist people are doing something because they're uh, potentially for their own personal gain, mm. whereas spy fiction is much more about loyalty mm. and that you're, as spies, you do what you do for loyalty, either for loyalty to your country or because it's like all you know how to do Yes, in some some circumstances. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't have picked two different two different groups. I guess two more <laughs> different groups. Like, uh, I'm. I mean, if you listen to this season, and, and these guys are so much cooler than we are. They just seem to do everything so much better than the Gideon lot do. Even when they're messing up, it's got that sheen of elegance and suave and sophistication to it. Because again, in terms of things that are different between the the two genres, trope wise. When things go wrong in a heist, it's a house of cards that's ready to come tumbling down. Mm. Whereas when things go wrong in spy fiction, it's like the masks coming off, mm. right? And it's stuff when stuff goes wrong, it's just leading towards that confrontation between mm. the the parties. Mm. So it's another high stakes, high intensity situation on par with with Amnesty, I think. Um, certainly by the finale, <laughs> it's a similar similar outcome. But how do you maintain? that level of, of, of kinetic energy and of intensity. I think some of it is it uh, about like spotlight pacing, like when to switch between perspectives and when to switch between scenes and locations. Some of it is just about um, like the, the actions of the supporting characters and enemies in the scene, that when the antagonists are relentless, the pace picks up mm. like if they can't just be beaten back or driven off mm. if they keep coming whatever you do to them mm. then that ups the stakes and ups the tension and the pace yeah there was a real real severe consequence of <laughs> failure in this one you know yeah. ultimately as you said with the countdown ticking clock and and you know um brainwashed agents mm. being released out into the wild mm. um that really meant that there was a lot of it was a high stakes mm. encounter Right the way to the end, every action mattered. Even you know, if there was a failure, then everybody had to up their game, and you can tell everybody's throwing dice at each other to assist. And <laughs> and maybe it's because of the high stakes nature, but maybe also it's the the strat rule of call. And it's like, well, I want to shoot somebody from here, and I want to run across the, the 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 rooftops and whatever else. You can hijack a passing helicopter if you want. Even hunt that thing Excellent. so hard. <laughs> I am going to do that. So a helicopter uh, moves in and the pilot, like this is sort of at the point where the smoke isn't too visible yet and the pilot still thinks that they can hover over and pick up a stack of containers. So my plan is to use the cover of the smoke to run Mm -hmm. and jump on the On the skid. Roll some blunt. No! Uh, You miss the strut. And plummet. Oh, man. Oh, shit, man. Shit, okay. And you hit the ground Ow. outside the warehouse Ow. and you are injured. Oh, yes. mate. If you take any more damage, you're gone. Right, okay. Yeah, everybody's got an idea in their head of what is a cool thing to do in a mm-hmm. spy thriller. Yeah. So the, the setting is obviously a very cool one, right? Mm-hmm. You think of James Bond, you think of Tom Cruise character from Mission Impossible, <laughs> Ethan. Hunt. Not Hawk, he's Not an actor. Hawk, he's a real person. Uh, you think about how super suave and cool those people are. How do you think our team got on? Because <laughs> there's a bit of a contrast, right, between super cool mm. secret agents and 
Blackshaw slash merely role players. And I mean that in the <laughs> nicest possible way. We're, we're a silly bunch. We yeah. enjoy foolishness. We enjoy coming up with situations that make us look silly. Three seasons ago, Chris Darkey pissed a urinal through a wall. <laughs> I think it is a compliment to say that none of us act like blunt instruments of the state. No, no, <laughs> a- absolutely. And any time there's an opportunity for foolishness, we try and find it. I think about this season in particular, very early on, one of the rogue agents is being interrogated by Ellie. My, Ellie. my brain went to the exact same place when you asked this question. Ellie, for some reason, had a fixation with snacks <laughs> and with a snack fridge. And there was... I, I remember at one point you broke character and you went, out of character, Ellie. What are you trying to get out of this? <laughs> yeah. And Ellie just said, oh, I'm just trying to weird him out or her out. Do you want a snack? Can I just get out like a packet of crisps? Start eating. <laughs> You can see her, like, eyeing the snacks. Yeah. But she sort of remains resolute. And then I'm like, I pick up another packet. Prawn cocktail? It's your favourite. She stays stony-faced. <laughs> but you can see that it's taking an effort. So I slowly open the prawn cocktail back of crisps. Just sort of waft them in her direction. You sure? Turns her head away so she can't smell them. <laughs> Fine. I just start slowly licking the flavour off the crisps <laughs> and then discarding the damp, unflavoured bit on the floor. <laughs> what are you doing? This is how I eat prawn cocktail crisps. <laughs> do, you, do you want one? No. <laughs> <sighs> what, is, what? Out of character, what is, your, what is your goal? I'm trying to weird her out okay, until into... she'll just talk to me yeah. out of, like, maybe frustration. <laughs> And she succeeded. Yeah, it's partly from the fact that in these seasons, we're doing a bit of game design at the table. Like, we design signature moves as part of character creation. Like, they're mostly not picked off a list that I've come up with. I haven't come up with the the three different outcomes for each of those moves. We're just coming up with what is a thing that the player wants to be able to do, so we'll let them do it. So we had this signature move for Ellie that she was able to just get people to slip up and drop details mm. without, like, even if they're guarding them closely. Mm. And it's what we discovered then is it's one thing to come up with that as a move that your character has and another thing to work out how to elegantly, fictionally trigger that in mm-hmm. play. Which, to be fair to her, for the rest of the season, she was incredibly suave and sophisticated, uh-huh. was wearing an amazing <laughs> dress and was seducing people left, right and centre. Mm. But it was like, it was, there was a check-in necessary to be like, are you trying to trigger that move now? Is mm-hmm. that what you're doing to trigger that move? And yeah. then I have to then follow that up with, okay, so what is it about the things that Ellie is saying mm. that will bamboozle or trick or goad or confuse mm-hmm. this agent into slipping up? And yeah. then what detail does it make them Yes, draw? for sure, for sure. I guess ultimately, um, yes, it, it, it might seem a bit strange to have that foolishness when you're being top secret secret <laughs> agents. But at the same time, this is for fun. Yeah. This is a podcast. And I think people really are receptive to the silly moments that oh, we yeah. bring because nobody, nobody wants to listen to a bunch of actors all being really serious and, and you know, acting their hearts out on a podcast that's meant to be well, for I, a bit I of think fun. it's the fact that we can do both. We, that's we, true. We do the silly scene where we're talking about crisps mm. to a completely nonplussed brainwashed agent mm-hmm. and then we have the very high emotion uh like strat falls off a building while jumping to grab onto helicopter skids yeah you've got vicky in her henchman fight jabbing yeah. somebody with broken uh, uh what's it called mop pole yeah yeah so we can we can turn on the seriousness mm. when we when the occasion demands it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. indeed it's nice to have somebody on my level. Thank you, Dr. McQuarrie. That's, that's delightful. Uh, and as he's been talking, I've been like saying how clever he is and touching yeah. his arm and <laughs> so good. laughing yeah, and think... just all the flirting. And that's when all the alarms go off. Can <gasps> <gasps> oh, I kiss him first? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, as the alarms go off. <laughs> no, before I go off. Yeah. That'd be weird timing otherwise. Like, as a distraction. There's not alarms going off. It's all just in your head. Yeah, they'll definitely stop any second now. Yeah. yeah. Through, throughout that conversation, as he's getting more desperate. Which and getting closer and closer. You're just getting closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, I can help you. Yeah, so you, we have a... Smack I, I can save you, Renee. We have a beautiful tableau of the two of you in a cinch, in a, like, in the red, flashing red light. <laughs> I was just really impressed with how smoothly this season mm-hmm. went. Like each scene 
just transitioned from one to the other really smoothly. Everybody had an idea. Everybody had the big picture idea of, oh, we need to capture this person in the first act. Then we need to find more information. There's the interrogation. Then we need to find information here. And then it's the epic finale. I don't know if it's just that your your editing was on point. More likely it's the players were just really, really on point for this one and knew exactly what they wanted the whole way through. Because it's not it's not a simple story. No. It's quite complicated. It's it's spy. They have to be You've got to have twists and turns tricky. and following leads. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that it hangs together that well, because mm. this is one of the ones where I have like a specific a really specific moment that I feel like I could have done better. Like there's a I I'm trying to remember the exact moment. There's a role where they're trying to get some information about something and I think they're they're in their agency safe house and they're using the systems there to try and find information about whoever it is that they're after. And I think it was either a mixed success or I think it was a complete fail. And I, the response to the complete fail was that they didn't get the information they wanted and that we had like this um, cutaway to somebody off screen who, or off stage who was like surveilling them. Okay, and what's the consequence of the fact that you failed to try and find this stuff out? How were He's you so bad at finding yeah. stuff out? How were you investigating this? Oh, I was just googling it. <laughs> just... Oh, amazing! <laughs> sure, and that's untraceable too. Yeah. which is great. Um, Private browsing was fine. <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> somewhere else, uh, we we see uh, somewhere else uh, like a, a big surveillance monitoring <laughs> suite. And there's a silhouette in a swivel chair looking at all of these screens with data and, and video feeds and, and all sorts all over them. And one of the screens lights up red with an alert and the figure in the chair uh, takes notice. And just looking back at that moment, listening back to that moment in the edit or looking back at it in prep for this, ever since then I've been like, but that was just the perfect moment for men with guns to burst in. It's partly one of the things that I have learned as I've gone on that I just didn't really have the mindset to do early on is that the consequence of a six minus role in Powered by the Apocalypse doesn't have to be a direct consequence of the thing that you were doing, Mm. right? So tap, tap, tap on the computer, roll a six minus something bad happens or something um, unexpected and and disadvantageous happens. But it doesn't have to be because you were tap, tap, tapping on the computer. No. It can just be the bad guys found you in the safe house. They were coming the whole time. Yeah. It's very bad timing because you were trying to think, you were trying to find this intel. Now you can't and you're being driven out of your safe house and there's no safe place to go anymore. Mm. Because you've always got those clocks ticking away. That countdown is constantly working any point like like you say if it doesn't make sense narratively for someone tap tap tapping away to then oh the computer explodes or you yeah. i don't know you break a you break your finger while you're typing or something if that doesn't make sense then of course lean back and check your notes and say oh that that's what team the on the on the case to come and get you guys those bad guys of course they burst through the yeah. door now they were on the way anyway i mean in in the spy genre it is never inappropriate for a squad of goons with no. guns to burst through the door absolutely that's the whole point of the genre <laughs> Okay, so let's talk some more about style and the stylistic approach. And in this case, I guess it's more to do with like a, a, a time frame. Um, as we've discussed on these replay episodes, each and every season gets bigger and bigger and bigger and culminates in season six, which we will cover, um, with an epic space-faring adventure. So we go from season one, which is confined to in a theatre, to then a theatre complex, to then a town, to then a country, and now sort of the world's the limit, right? Wherever you yeah. want to go, you can do it. Got to be a globe-trotting spy adventure, and it has to be because if we, because if, if these guys are just fighting in in the centre of London or in the <laughs> middle of I don't know the, the hills in England somewhere, it's not very exciting. We want glam. We want Ellie to be able to walk through in her in her dress in the Burj Khalifa. We want to be able to see people <laughs> skydiving and doing whatever else. We're, the 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 franchise that we haven't talked about in terms of spy thrillers is the Fast and the Furious, which, oh. did, which didn't start as a spy thriller it franchise. It was a car film, but it is one now. Hobbs and Shaw, whatever they're called. <laughs> so Gideon, I found, allowed us to think up our own scenes mm-hmm. and our own settings. We could say, "Hey, we, I want to go to the Freeport and interrogate this person. I want to do this." 
mosaic was even bigger it was where do you want to go in the world yeah. do you want to investigate this and and the guys had a lot more freedom to decide where they wanted to go and what they wanted their outcome to be it was less sort of railroaded as traditional rpgs might be so hiding amongst all of that waffling is a question do you prefer running that sort of game it's a bit more high stress for you because you don't know what they're going to ask mm-hmm. but one could argue that it's more satisfying yeah, I don't find it a higher stress, really, to be honest, because I can always just turn it back on the players if they have a question that I don't have an answer for. Mm. Because often when people ask the GM a question, there is an answer that they're secretly hoping for. Mm. And sometimes it's just about saying, well, tell me what that answer was and that can, that can be it. I, if I, it's, I, if I, it, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I think it's around this sort of time in the seasons that you start putting it back on the players that you learn as a games master to say, what do you think it looks like? What well, do you think's I, there? I, I seem to, I think one of the locations that we go to, don't we go to Dubai or somewhere like that in, yes. um, in Mosaic. And I think there was like a gather intel role, like where where do we need to go next? And I think I just asked them, didn't I? I was just like, well, you tell me where it is. Where's a cool place yeah. that at least some of us at the table know enough about to set a scene in mm. and well, we'll then, make it there. Then the pressure isn't on you to come up with the idea. It's on yeah. pressure of you and everybody to put put your heads together and think, where's cool? Oh, I want to go to Dubai and go to the Burj Al Khalifa. I want to go to the yeah. Great Barrier Reef. I want to do you know, something cool. You get to decide together. Yeah, and it flips the script on the idea that the, the GM has... Uh, planned everything out in advance and the players are just like scratching the panels off mm-hmm. the adventure to find out where the next location is we're deciding together where the next location collaborative is. play yeah learn to play together just like <laughs> when we were children everybody play nicely together okay so yeah so you're high-flying theater producers you have a nice suite uh with an amazing view in the burj khalifa uh and... wow the arts really does pay yeah. <laughs> Speaking of stylistic approaches, um, let's open the, open the floor up um, to the cast. We have a question from Agent Pigeon herself, uh, Ellie. Hello, Matt. It's Ellie from Mosaic and several other series from Millie Roleplayers. This series felt very filmic, particularly during the fight scenes. Was that inevitable based on the spy genre influenced by James Bond and so on? We were all looking through a camera in our minds. And how do you feel about filmic description in roleplay games? Thank you and goodbye. I believe that Ellie reads my newsletter and uh, knows that this is a, a question that will let me get on a hobby horse. Fantastic. <laughs> right. Everybody get comfortable. Go put the kettle on. Uh, Matt's on his horse now. Off you go. Oh, I have to be really careful about this because I don't want to dunk on any anybody else's style. Like, I don't think the way that we do podcasts is the right way and other people are wrong. But it's just different. It's just different. And, and you, you won't be singling anybody out no. in particular. No, no, no. So feel free to speak. So mind. first part of the question Yes, uh, the genre is cinematic. And, you know, when we think about Bond, you'd be in in the minority if you weren't imagining the films. And, you know, when we talk about all the touchstones of the genre, it's it's cinema. So obviously we're sort of thinking in cinematic terms in terms of the big locations and the big set pieces and the action and that kind of thing. In terms of cinematic description in role-playing games and in actual plays, um, it's something that other productions do use to the extent of actually setting the scene by saying the camera shows X, Y, and Z. We see a shot of, we see a pan across or a close-up. Cut to, zoom in on. Yeah, exactly. Using all of those kind of um, camera terminology terms, which I think is a valid approach, but just personally as an audience member, it knocks me backwards out of the action because I find that I'm imagining a screen instead of imagining myself like immersed in the action. Mm -hmm. And it it just feels like it's extra unnecessary verbiage. Like instead of saying we we open on a shot of uh, uh, the Niagara Falls pouring over the the uh, cliff, mm. you can just say the Niagara Falls are pouring over the cliff, and it's mm. fewer words, and it gets you into the action faster. And you're not imagining uh, the border of a cinema screen around the action. Yeah. You're just fully in it in your imagination. Mm. So. It's not a technique, let's put it this way, it's not a technique that I will ever use. Mm. I don't think it's a completely invalid technique and it seems to work very well for a lot of people. Mm. And it is true that like film and cinema are kind of the lingua franca of a lot of people's 
storytelling. Like that is the form of storytelling that a lot of people are most familiar with. And so it can be a way of familiarizing and kind of keying into uh, like activating people's imagination in a way that they're used to. Mm -hmm. But I think it also feeds into the idea, which I don't think is good, that cinema is like the the end goal of all storytelling. That's fair. So there's always like when when there's a great when a great book is published, people's a lot of people's reaction is I can't wait to see a film of this. When a great comic is published, people are like, this would be amazing as a film. You know, when a great game is published, well, less so with games because film adaptations of games. Most are of them are pants. <laughs> pants. But it there is this sense that whatever medium, audio dramas, it's starting to happen with um, audio dramas that you know, Netflix is doing big screen adaptations mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Like sometimes the comic or the book or the audio drama can be the finished product and it doesn't have to just be a storyboard for an eventual film. The film doesn't have to be the end point. So that's 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 my rant. That's me on the hobby horse that I'm sure Ellie was trying to provoke me on to. Thank you very much for joining us at Merely Roleplayers <laughs> TED Talk. Uh, Matt Boothman is available for other talks. Um, no, great. That's fair enough. You're very passionate about it. And I totally agree. It, feel, it can feel forced if you use that sort of filmic language to describe what people are seeing. It's like... The GM has got his head, his hands clamped around your head and is saying, look here, now look here, rather than allowing you to figuratively search yourself, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the analogy I made in a past episode about um, if you overly describe things, if you go into a room, you say, you, you see a car, the car is red and it has a V8 engine and five cars and a scratch across the... Don't need to know all that. <laughs> say you can see a car. Everybody will picture a different car, but they, they get to see something themselves. They have agency to see what they want to see. Same way, if you say, uh, cut to a shot of Niagara Falls, low zoom in, and then you notice somebody who's climbing along the banks, and we cut quickly to their exhausted face, why not just say, you're at Niagara Falls, who, you know, who's that over there? You notice somebody down there. Yeah. It's there's a, there's another technique which um, I, I haven't fully formed an opinion on yet, but, but I definitely think is interesting um, in terms of description that I've heard in a few things, which is... Um, when people give a give a visual reference and suggest that you Google it, mm. which I think is interesting because it acknowledges the kind of the cross media way that people consume podcasts specifically. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think you'd ever you probably wouldn't see that in a book in a published book, but on a no. on an audio drama or a podcast, especially something kind of that has that kind of informal feel like an actual play, yeah, where it's kind of people having a conversation around the table. Most people will be consuming that on a phone and they actually can just Google it mm. and, and see what the person is talking about. And that can be an interesting, it can be a useful shortcut. Mm. So, yeah, I haven't fully decided whether I'm okay. kind of for or against that or whether it's something I would ever, I think it probably isn't a technique I would use, but I'm not as totally dead against it. As no. I, I'm, as I, I Me am, personally, I, I am totally theatre of the mind and I really really like that however i do appreciate having visual cues mm-hmm. in games that i've run every so often i will show an image of what i'm trying to describe mm-hmm. and either that's because it helps my players understand or a lot of the time with me i really struggle to find the words i do stutter sometimes i get frustrated if i can't say the exact part of what i'm trying to describe if i say you know you see a couple of archers uh, up on the castle they're on the they're on the thing and i can't think of the word battlements it's sometimes good to be like right the castle looks like this they're up there i can't describe late medieval castles particularly well because i don't know the words this is what it looks like they're up here we're all on the same page brilliant it's not necessary but for me i like to be able to communicate exactly well, what i mean that uh, specifically in role playing games there are times when it really is necessary for everybody to be mm. imagining like you don't as you've said in earlier episodes of this, you describe you walk into a room and there's a dog there. Everybody's probably imagining a different dog. Mm. But if it's crucial to the game that the dog is a particular breed, mm-hmm. you know, true, particular then, size, is it a guard dog? Is it dangerous? Yeah. Or if it, or you know, if uh, you're going to have to fight the dog and the game demands that you know how many feet away from the dog you yeah, are, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Then yeah. it's important to give enough reference for people to be imagining those details the same True. way yeah. so that everybody is... And in, and in combat-heavy games, it's very, very important because, let's take D&D as an example, low-level D&D, you can totally play Theatre of the Mind. 
You see, you see a man with a sword, right? What are you going to do? Fight, 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 fight. When you get to higher levels, if you're fighting Tiamat and you've got a load of little minions running around the place, there's no way that everyone can be sort of theatre of the mind. No, that's when those sorts of games turn into war games with minis and spacing and you're all measuring how far away and how much effect your spell will be yeah. because that's the nature of that game. Um, yeah. However, with this, <laughs> with um, Codename Mosaic, no no such need to um, implement visual, um, no. visual cues. And you don't lean too heavily into the realms of cut to the Burj Khalifa, then we have a, a trekking shot of Ellie walking across the, the hallway, da-da-da-da-da. You, you don't necessarily We, we kind that. of, we, we set a scene and we, we describe, we do, like, if you were to label sections of what, of, like, if you did a transcript of the episode, you could probably label, this paragraph is the establishing shot. Mm-hmm. But we don't say... We open with an establishing, establishing shot, shot, point of view, yeah, exterior. We, we just kind of say the thing. Yeah, absolutely. She is stationed on Neptune Island. Ooh. That's an island. That's an island. That's an island. Where is and what is and how is Neptune Island? Neptune Island is a, a an artificial island in Classic. the uh, in the area of the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia. Always wanted to go there. Nice. Uh, it's one of these islands that's been uh, they've cre- they've they've reclaimed the land using like trash, mm-hmm. so it's like they've recycled the like trash. An eco island, yeah, it's like an eco island. So it's basically like it's made of plastic, effectively, but mm-hmm. it is out there and it is billed uh, as a kind of uh, like a resort spa. Like, go there to reinvent yourself, let all your troubles melt away, super rich mm-hmm. getaway. Rather fittingly, to finish off this season, we're going to talk about the finale. Possibly the coolest location and finale in Millie Role Players. Maybe up to this point, I don't know, maybe I'm not being fair, but <laughs> Neptune Island, yeah. an artificial floating island in the middle, of, or just off the coast of Australia in the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. Proper bond, sun, sea, <laughs> sand. We've got our agents infiltrating from all different locations. Yeah. Uh, we've got a skydiver. We've got someone coming in on an unspecified sports car. We've got strat scuba diving for some reason, I believe. Um, and and you can just picture everybody getting out of the water, landing from the skydive, stepping out of the car and unzipping and just having the tactical combat vest underneath or a tuxedo or, in Ellie's case, an amazing floor-length dress that she described. Just so cool and so yeah. classy. I think it's such an amazing finale. I'm a big fan of this and series. And we've just got to roll all of the possible spy finale locations into one. So, you know, Neptune Island has a casino and a eyeglass hotel and a secret lab and a, a weird warehouse full of brainwashed agents. And of course and there are helicopters everywhere. And of course there's place for your sports car. Of course all of this is happening. Yeah, I, do, I, I feel that this was very much a game of two halves. First half. We established law, we established story, there were conversations about, you know, there was interrogations, conversations. Second half, acting it out. I even remember there's a point in the story where you say, are we ready to do this? Because I think you kind of were very much aware there'd been lots and lots of planning, and I think you were ready to really, you know, see it all through. Yeah. Um, I think that there might have been an instinct to kind of, like, we need to uncover the entire situation before we can do anything about it yeah um, and i think that was a point where we just had to say okay maybe there are still some details you don't understand you don't fully know why mosaic is doing this you don't know mosaic's true identity yet mm-hmm. but you've got enough leads that lead you to this place and you will probably find the answers that you're looking for there yeah. so let's do it 100 percent, 100 percent. everybody got the opportunity to, to sort of zero in on that final location uh, i think everybody Especially Vicky had tropes full filling their brains. And they're like, we've only got two hours left of recording. I haven't done this yet. I wanna, I wanna pull a handbrake turn in a, in a sports car. I wanna have an epic fight with a with a with a goon on on the top floor of a skyscraper. And everybody got a chance to act that out. Ellie is a classy bitch. Strat is a sneaky, sneaky, stealthy snake. Vicky is an absolute tank. I think she's the only person that ever gets any stats in body or physicality in this game. I think it's the two of you. Yeah, we we tended to give you good body stats because we know that you once cycled the whole length of New Zealand. Because I run and cycle, and... and we tend to give Vicky good body stats because usually it's like, oh shit, nobody in the team <laughs> has has somebody should probably have a good stat in that. Uh, Vicky does exercise. I think Vicky does, did some sort of boxing or, yeah, or, or exercise like or something like that. Uh, 
anyway, and, and then finally, um, Chris McLennan, I, his final act of, uh-huh. of flying the helicopter into Agent Mosaic and finishing mm-hmm. her off, despite the fact they'd all been told to take her in alive, still shocks me every time I hear it. It's, <laughs> it's brilliantly done. It just comes out of nowhere, and I, I never expected to happen. So I'm going to be on comms to Chris and say, who's, do you, should we get, who's going to pick her up? Because you can't pilot it and pick her up, really, can you? I've got this. Okay. He's got a plan. All right. So we pull back. Yeah, the way is clear for whatever you want to try, Chris. You just hear. This is for Gosma, you weird bitch. (laughs) Oh, no. Just took the helicopter down so the blazer. (laughs) Oh, no. Just slices Roll blunt and you get to add piloting. Yes, I do. Uh, That's uh, nine. Oh, big success. (laughs) So you 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 splatter <gasps> mosaic. Yeah, because the other three I think are all quite resigned at that point. Mm. You know, they've been given their orders and they're all good Ooh, soldiers. It's like, oh damn it, oh, we we were, we were so close. Matt's told us to do the, something. The rug's been pulled out from under us at the last minute. <laughs> and then Chris is like, Hello! I don't work for you. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was amazing, and like I say, everybody got an, a, an excellent moment to excel. Even if yeah. Strat decided to fall off the building accidentally, um, you can again another moment that you can imagine mm-hmm. that you know if we do go into cinematic techniques, you know mm-hmm. he jumps off the roof, he jumps towards the the skid of the helicopter he's trying to go to. Everything goes into slow motion mm-hmm. as we see him cut to miss it by a, <laughs> miss it by a hair and plummet to the ground. Whoa. Uh, and it foreshadowed quite nicely events that happened in season nine, Prosper and Viola. Mm-hmm. Strat has history with falling and with helicopters. Yes. So. Is it what do you call reverse foreshadowing? Where, mm, like, past it, shadowing. It, for, it foreshadows it. It foreshadows later events, but but only because it happened, later. and therefore we called back to it. Um, so this is a subtle thing. Yep. So as I do it, I've been talking to this com all the time, yep. but this time I'm going to put my <gasps> finger up to this ear. Oh, man. I'm excited about this. So Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You've done it. A, a little while back, in fact, before all this has happened. So I'd like the timing to work out so as the helicopter comes to a stop, this will happen. So a little while back, probably when I had fallen off the thing and everything was going to shit around me, I'm going to put my finger up to my ear and I'm just going to be croaking. I'm going to go, Poppins, confirm umbrella <laughs> protocol. I repeat, yeah. Poppins, confirm umbrella po- protocol. It's like Tony Stark and all the Iron <laughs> This is man. amazing. And so as the... Uh, you, you hear umbrella protocol confirmed. <laughs> Yay! So as it's all the ship is going down and that the, the helicopter's like screeches to a halt next to me, there's going to be another sound of kind of uh, another helicopter. We've got all the helicopters. Yeah. There's a lot of helicopters. It's a crowded uh, airspace. It's not a like yeah, black ops exactly. helicopter though. And a, a rope is going to appear and a figure is going to slide down to it sort of like in full gear uh, and is going to uh, take off uh, the kind of face mask <laughs> and Helen is going to do that. I'm going to look up to her and go, time maybe we got out of this business and settled down. <laughs> Okay, Matt, let's finish off season five, codename Mosaic, by uh, doing your statistics. You mean codename Matzaic? Codename Matzaic, that's right. Uh, Let's do Matt's stats. So, uh, talk us through the stats on this one. Uh, So the stats for codename Mosaic were suave, subtle, smart, and blunt. All quite self-explanatory? I think so, and I really enjoyed the blunt Breaks the pattern, breaks the S's pattern, because that's what Blunt does. That's true. And you were really looking forward to everybody guessing what the last S was, wouldn't you? You're like, Blunt. Uh, your scores, once again, are plus two, plus one, zero, and minus one. We have enlisted the help of Agent Tanktop, also known as Strat, uh, who's going to give you your scores. But let's start with the guessing game. Where do you think your scores will be given? I think the two is going to be in Smart, not to toot my own trumpet. Uh, I think the minus score hmm, if it was me doing it I might be torn between suave and blunt but I think I'll put it in blunt and then I'm I'm struggling with uh, the the one and the zero 
suave and subtle. Put your put your head inside uh, inside the brain <laughs> of uh, of Strat of uh, tank top. What does he think? I'm going to go. I'm going to go uh, straight down the line. So smart two suave one subtle zero blunt minus one. Okay, I can tell you, Matt, that it's a clean sweep. One hundred percent. Strat has given you smart two suave one subtle zero blunt minus one. Uh, I don't know if he worked that out or if he just did it in order. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's all good. Um, I asked him for uh, some reasons for the above. And he has given four answers to this one. Smart. Matt has both the air of cleverness and, more importantly, the actual cleverness <laughs> to go along with it. He managed to pull together the threads of ten-plus series of merely role players into a satisfying conclusion. Our boys got smarts. Uh, so he thinks you're super smart. Um, that's good. the seasons we've done so far. You've scored pretty highly on intellect and smart and stuff. Suave, which is your plus one. He's a snappy dresser, in brackets, <laughs> waistcoats. Oh, you did wear a waistcoat here today, didn't you? Or was it a jacket? It was a blazer. It was a blazer. You were very well turned out. I'm I do impressed. have waistcoats in the wardrobe, though. Fair enough. Uh, he also says that you have a silver tongue that can turn <laughs> razor sharp when he wants it to be. <laughs> Your subtle is zero. Uh, it's not that Matt isn't subtle. I just think he'd approach things differently. Mm. He's not a sneaky man, I don't think. <laughs> and that's coming from the sneakiest man in really mm-hmm. role players. So does that seem fair? Yeah. And finally, blunt, minus one. He simply writes... Have you met Matt? <laughs> you are not a blunt object, it appears, which I think is fair. Yeah, I'm very excited for uh, to find out why I've been given for number two on this sheet. Yes, but let's move on to number two. Um, you're going to have to tell me if there is a, a, a backstory or a little in-joke here. Um, oh. The question is, what would Matt's code name be? Mm. We obviously have Anvil, Tank Top. Uh, Foxglove and Pigeon. Uh, and later Banks. And Banks, of course. Also Poppins part of this season, though not a player. Poppins Protocol, shouting out to Helen there. He's given you code name Copper Pot. <laughs> what does that mean, please? Uh, I don't think there's uh, an in-joke there. Okay. I mean, you um, like coffee, don't you? That is true. Proper uh, cup of coffee in a proper copper coffee pot, yeah. maybe? Anyway, co- uh, code name Copper Pot. Um, so you are the smart and slightly suave agent. Um, so presumably you've got a, maybe like a Q role. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah, thinking gadgets. That. 100%. Finally, what would your signature spy move be? Uh, he has given you a move called Read the Room. Roll plus smart. On a success, your intuition tells you exactly what a person will do next. It allows you to avoid a bad situation, counter an attack, etc. Exciting. I, and Strat's done, like, it shows that Strat has done Powered by the Apocalypse game design before because he's, he's designed a whole move. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's going to take your system and add some more things to it. So you are a uh, smart and suave secret agent, agent uh, codenamed Copperpot with your read the room ability. You happy? I am happy. Fantastic. This has been Replay a backstage episode from Merely Roleplayers. It was created, researched and hosted by Josh Yard, and the editing, music and production were by me, Matt Boothman. If you have a question about any Merely Roleplayers production from Parallax onwards, tweet it at Merely Roleplay on Twitter, or email it to MerelyRoleplayers at gmail.com, and it could be featured in an upcoming replay episode. Merely Roleplayers is a Foggy Outline production in association with Blackshaw Theatre Company. Until next time, if drama be the food of life, play on! <laughs>